one of the interesting things about this island on both sides is that we're actually often, on a day-to-day -day basis, not policed. It's worth reminding ourselves that it is a reasonably low crime environment and therefore in thinking about future policing models it would be good if we're not over policed, if we're policed mm. appropriately to the culture, to the economy, to the way that, that we live. Much of society is well regulated and self-policed but of course we do need police and we need them to be appropriately uh, backed up by the law where necessary. But we've never heard of police forces who ask for fewer powers and fewer resources. So we need to be mindful yeah. of that going forward. Hello, and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. Our subject today is policing. Always a vexed issue uh, in relation to Northern Ireland and indeed not without its controversies in the Republic as, as well. Delighted to have as our guest today, Vicky Conway of the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. And she's recently published an article entitled Policing in the United Ireland, the Intractable Questions of Governance, Oversight and Accountability. Well, I suppose we'll see how intractable they are when she's taken us through her, her paper. Um, also delighted to have joining us is Professor Roger McGinty, who is the Professor of Defence, Development and Diplomacy at the University of Durham. So maybe, Vicky, we could just kind of kick off. Maybe you might like to summarise the sort of the, the scope and the, the thrust of your of your article. Thanks very much for having me on, Rory. Yeah, the the article was about, I mean, I mean, I was approached and asked to write this and it was a really interesting challenge to try and think about if we had a united Ireland, what would that mean for police governance, oversight and accountability? And of course, those are words that get intermingled and used in different ways, but they are the key elements by which we regulate, contain, control and, and hold to account the police for how they use the powers, the, the really significant powers that we give them in any society. And it's a really interesting question because in both jurisdictions independently, these have been really huge, difficult questions. Um, you know, the, the reform of from the RUC to the PSNI after the conflict um, and in the South, what we've been dealing with for the last 15 years in terms of police scandals and issues around oversight. And, and there's a feeling, you know, huge change and strides have been made in Northern Ireland. Um, I think we're still really, really grappling with them in the South. But how we bring that, how do you bring that together and, and what are the issues that would arise if we tried to think about policing an, in an all-island way? So it was really just about taking a bit of space and time to start thinking about that because I think if we're looking at that in the future, it's so important that we take a, an extremely considered approach because we know all too well what the consequences of, you know, poor policing or, or policing that's not well overseen and held to account, what that can do to society generally. So it's really important that we're having these conversations well in advance and, and you know, that it prompts all kinds of intersections and reactions from people. Maybe you might just say a little or or, or, or offer to the, the lay listener like like myself a sense of, of, of the difference between these three words, which, as you say, are often quite tangled together. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I talk in the piece at times that if you go to the literature from the 1990s, often they talk about that accountability can be achieved in different ways, whether that's how we control the police or how we hold them answerable. But the way I like to think about it is that governance is the structures we put in place in advance to try and ensure that everything is done well. So it might be the regulations we have around how policing is done. It might be the structures we we put in place for oversight. It might be, um, you know, the policies and regulations that we put in place. Oversight then is a day-to-day matter of continuously checking in and always looking and seeing what are the police doing. And then accountability is, you know, holding them to account for actions that have been taken. So I'd often say to my students, it's almost kind of like the before, during and after and about having a really robust system in place that gives us confidence that, you know, we're not waiting until the police have done something wrong and then going, why did that happen? That we're, we've got a really robust structure that allows us to check at all times that we're doing the best thing and we're trying our best to ensure that we get, you know, policing that achieves what we wanted to achieve, that respects human rights um, and is done in a way that also, you know, protects those that do it themselves. Yeah, that's very clear. Thank, thank you. Um, and of course, as you say, your article is focusing uh, on those issues. You point out that there are many others which would have to be considered. We might have a moment just to sort of name check some of those at the at the end. Uh, but as I say, the anyone who reads the article will see that uh, you know the topics of of governance and oversight and accountability um, are pretty significant and complex in in themselves. Maybe. Vicky, you might say a little about the extent to which the the two police services or forces on the island share a common heritage. I mean, I suppose after all, 110, 120 years ago, it was the Royal Irish Constabulary, essentially, and throughout the whole country, and maybe the Dublin Metropolitan Police as well. I'm always particularly fascinated by history in these things, and I think it's really important to look at how that has shaped where we are today. Um, So like one of the really interesting things, and I think it often gets missed, is that Ireland had policing before Britain did. So, you know, you go back to the 1780s and you see actually efforts being made in Westminster to introduce a police force in London and it being shot down because the lords at the time were really not too keen on giving these ordinary men powers to stop them in what they would do. So they didn't like that idea, but they were kind of okay with a a policing experiment in Dublin. And so we got a Dublin police force. And it was only in the 1820s then that you start to see policing emerge um, in England and Wales. And, And what's really interesting about that is that what happened in Ireland, on the island of Ireland, because it was the island at that point, and what happened in Britain are completely different. In Britain, the focus was about creating a police force that would serve the community. You know, it was citizens in uniform. It was people stepping up to do something for the benefit of everyone else. Very locally accountable. So in England and Wales from the 1830s, we see watch committees established at a local level. So straight up, they're like letting the community have a say in how policing is run. But in Ireland, the purpose of the police force was to ensure British rule. It was to, you know, gather information, to be there to suppress rebellions, to maintain law and order um, in all of this. And so those purposes are very, very different. And that really shaped how governance, oversight and accountability was done because it was all completely about 
achieving a political aim. So we had a very hierarchical structure with your head of police directly answerable to the minister. And so we get a much more politicised version. And that that actually got maintained even as we moved through the Royal Irish Constabulary into Angarda Síochána and the RUC. Much of that was maintained the same. And in fact, it was only you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, after initial concerns about policing by the RUC, that some changes were made and we see a policing authority brought in in Northern Ireland. But that didn't happen in Ireland until 2015. I talk a lot of my work about the post-colonial legacy and how that has shaped how we look at oversight and accountability. No, very interesting that you should... Um that you should sort of draw out those those elements of commonality because I suppose if you were to ask most people, they would say, well, because of the very different natures of the two states or the two entities created after you know independence and partition, you know, I suppose people would say, well, the RUC, they're armed, they have the the B specials backing them up, whereas the Gardaí enjoy a great deal of you know public and public support and public consensus, and famously, of course, aren't armed. But very interesting, as you say, that there are. Um, the commonalities continued, yeah. But even within that, like, actually, when the guards were created, they were armed. Yes. And they were only disarmed following a mutiny. And again, it was a political fear about, you know, we need to be able to control our police force. So, you know, it's interesting to recognise that, that that even in itself isn't necessarily the decision that it's often held up to be as, you know, an original aspiration to have an unarmed police force. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, um, Roger, you wanted to come in here. Yes, I I thought that the historical dimension of Fickey's article was superb and often overlooked because it's important to remember, as she points out, the securitized beginnings of policing on the island, and actually the process through which the guards went through was a process of desecuritization, and I think there are important lessons. In that, if we're thinking ahead, if we're thinking about a new Ireland, a shared island, some different form of constitutional dispensation, it's interesting to draw on our own historical memory, our own historical resources, and think through what that desecuritization has looked like. And to some extent, there has been that desecuritization in Northern Ireland over the past 20 years years, 25 years. But of course, that process is still very incomplete. And I think what's really interesting about that is that we have felt in Ireland like we don't have those processes to go through because we didn't have the conflict and we didn't have all of that. And so I think that's part of why we haven't addressed so many issues. But so much of policing in Ireland has actually been shaped by the troubles, you know, because the guards quite different to the PSNI or the IRC performs that security function. You know, we have like non-jury trials um, still in existence. So there's all of these legacies that we've acted like we didn't have to deal with, but they dealt with very clearly in the north. So, yeah, that that shifting between how securitized a police force, it's it, it's really there's been a real flux on both sides of the island. And, and so, yeah, it is. It's a really important point to consider in all of these questions. No, absolutely, yeah, it's, and and I suppose in a way, yes, what we've seen since the Good Friday Agreement and, and since the Patent Commission um, has been a a sort of you know modernisation to ter- lose the term very broadly uh, of policing in in Northern Ireland, and and as you say, maybe not in the same to the same extent or in the same manner in, in the South. In terms of accountability and oversight and uh, and governance, 
what are the main differences currently between North and South, would you say? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that the context is quite different because the guards do the security service for the state. Um, and the government has been really clear that that shapes how accountability fashion is fashioned because the head of the security services must be directly accountable to the minister. Because that's not the case in Northern Ireland, because MI5 is involved in that work, the chief constable is actually accountable to an independent body, the the, um, the policing board. So that's a significant difference that we see between the two. And, and that does shape the context and it shapes the context for the future as well, which is really important to recognise. Secondly, I would say we still have that legacy of political control over policing in Ireland in a way that is not the case to the same extent in the North. So there's a lot of political power still vested in government. They have the final say in appointing and removing um, the Garda Commissioner. They have very deep control over the budget. You know, they get to determine exactly how many guards there are and how many cars there are and how many stations. And as I say, the commissioner is accountable to them. Um, we see the board, the policing board in the north, compared to our policing authority, has much wider functions. In fact, you could say it has a role in governance oversight and accountability much more across the board. But it's it's differently composed. So it is made up of just over 50% political representatives who's been elected, whereas our policing authority is um, all independent people that are seen to have kind of relevant expertise that's important for the functions that it's performing. So in terms of governance, you know, we can look at in Ireland, there's a lot more political role in that with some input from um, the policing authority. Oversight is largely done by the authority and the inspectorate and that would be pretty, pretty similar in the north. You have the policing board and the inspectorate. And then in terms of accountability, we have a range of functions. So we have that political or board role in terms of the commissioner's position. We have complaints bodies that exist on both sides. Again, there is a difference. The um, police ombudsman in the north conducts all complaints investigations independently, whereas in the South, quite a few, about 30% are still leased back for the guards to um, investigate themselves. Although... It, and, and the police ombudsman, I suppose, has a much, in the North, has a much stronger involvement in sort of legacy issues as well. Yeah, although I suspect that's more because we're not dealing with the legacy issues in the South and we haven't kind of acknowledged the need to go there. Um, but I do think, that, like, there's an interesting point, you know, Dermot Walsh has, has researched this and irrespective of that, like, there is an issue on both sides of the border in terms of complaints because only 3% of complaints in the South, in, in a paper published in 2016, he found that 3% of complaints in the South resulted in sanction and only 5% in the North. So we have a huge issue of people, you know, who have gone to trouble of making complaints, are, we're, we're not really seeing any response from that. So, you know, again, we have the particulars about the context and then you have the broader issues that, you know, um, sanctioning police are, are holding them to account is just incredibly different, where, difficult wherever you are. Of course, there are various um, reforms currently, I suppose, under consideration being advanced in, in the South, though some of them quite controversial and, and have brought the the Garda Commissioner in, in, into conflict rather with the, the political system. Interestingly, just a little footnote, I suppose, I suppose that the Guards always had the security, national security function because the, the threat was essentially paramilitarism on the island. And of course, we record this a month into the uh, Ukraine conflict and I suppose the 
the range of security threats potentially to the state is a great deal broader than it used to be. And that may prompt some kind of rethink, but that's just a digression well, on my part. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. No, and I comment on that because I was a member of the Commission on the Future of Policing uh, and we were asked to look at the, this issue of whether or not, you know, security should remain in the guards. And um, one of the points we made is that, you know, almost irrespective of where it sits, certainly we need much more accountability in that space because we have had none in Ireland and there has been no transparency or accountability in that space. But the other point that we came to was that for the guards, the focus has been very insular. It has been quite fixated with the, you know, Republican threats or loyalist threats um, and that in fact the guards, that security capacity in Ireland really, really needs to be built up in order to, you know, be prepared for those other threats, um, more global threats that, that might emerge and, you know, that we have to have much better security uh, risk assessment. And, and so there are proposals from the Commission in terms of that that I think are being developed at present. If if we look at then, you know, the issues which could arise in a, a new united shared island, um, you, you go on, we'll go on in a moment to talk about, you know, options which which might be considered, but what do you think the principal issues you know, are which would have to be addressed again in this area of of governance, etc. Yeah, I mean, so when you're when you're looking at that prospect of a, an all island approach to policing, in some ways it's the basic questions that have have to be dealt with: who holds what powers in relation to policing? So, what powers does government have? What powers does the commissioner, or the chief constable, have? What powers does an oversight body have? Where does security sit? Who's going to be performing those functions? You know, you're going to have politicians on the independent board. Who's the chief constable accountable to? There are the everyday questions of of governance and accountability to be addressed. But there are also the context specific questions, you know, like that issue about security or the issue about legacy issues and how they're dealt with. But I suppose at the core, there is that very basic point of how do we develop a system that is going to be acceptable to all. Um, so how do we make something that, you know, in the north, the diversity of communities can can come on board with and find acceptable for them? So that's, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge in this space. Um, there are, as I go through in the article, there are technical issues about how where things sit. But at the core, we always have to be thinking about how is this acceptable to communities because, you know, that's who it affects. That's who's being policed. Um, I would just point out there are opportunities here as well, very much so. You know, we shouldn't always be looking at this as just a problem. Um, we, you know, an all-island situation removes a lot of the issues that in everyday policing around cross-border policing, you know, that would no longer be an issue. We also, you know, achieve parity on the island, which is very much in line with what was agreed through the Good Friday Agreement and um, that we enhance the human rights of all in an equal way going forward. Um, so there are huge challenges with it, but there's opportunities as well. Uh, Roger? Well, I think Vicky is absolutely right in terms of identifying challenges and opportunities going forward. And I think one of the the great uh, values of her article is that it's future scoping, that it is scanning the horizon and looking ahead and thinking seriously in the policy domain about what policing might look like in the, fu- in the future. Because when we think about it, 
none of us were present when the social contract was made. None of us were present when, you know, the great functions of the state were put in place. So this is an opportunity to have an input into what policing might look like, to recalibrate a series of relationships, relationships in, in, in relation to accountability, governance, oversight, just as, as Vicky has been talking about, but also relationships between the public and, and the police. And it, it's interesting to reflect on accountability in relation to policing, because really stories on both sides of, of the border uh, show quite a shallow accountability. Ultimately, let's face it, policing accountability for the PSNI rests in London. Um, and in relation to the South, I think we can all agree that there is a Dublin political stitch up in terms of a lot of accountability matters. So moving forward, there are opportunities to think through what policing might look like and also what other public services might look like. No, absolutely. And of course, a major issue of, of context would be precisely if there were a United Ireland, to what extent would Northern Ireland remain a distinct entity within a United Ireland? Would there still be a, a stormant similar to what we have today, etc.? But that brings me, to, Vicky, to really what is in many ways, I think, um, a really fascinating part of your of your article, where you look, uh, in fact, at no fewer than six options which you know, could be considered uh, for the future organisation of, of the issues that you, you deal with. And, and maybe you might like to, to run through them sort of briefly, but then if you had to to pick one or, 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 or more, which do, you, where, which do you think are those promising? So, yeah, and this was, you know, was a really interesting bit of work to do to think really blue skies about what could we have um, in the future. So I suppose the six options are, firstly, we could retain the two police services with two distinct oversight bodies. So like the policing board and the policing authority, but all reporting into one minister. We could have two services with one oversight body reporting to one minister. We could merge the two forces um, without rebranding them. So we, they retain their, the symbols of the current forces. We could merge and rebrand and basically making them either the Angarda Siakana or the PSNI um, for the island. We could create one new police force um, for the whole island or we could create multiple police forces for the island. And I think... Some of this is like it does generate quite technical questions when you start to look at it. I suppose one in particular is this point about to whom is the Garda Commissioner accountable? I think we're very used to in Ireland the fact that that is politically controlled and we have clear statements from government that as long as they're the head of security, that needs to be politically controlled in line with our constitution. But in the North, I think the reforms that have happened over the last 20 years, they've become very comfortable with that accountability being depoliticised and that shouldn't be a political function and that the chief constable should be held to account for the performance of their role irrespective of, you know, who's in government in office that day. And so I think whenever you think about, even if it's maintaining the forces but they're reporting to one minister or if you're merging them, 
I think that will be a key issue to whom is the chief constable accountable to. And I my view is that that would not be overly acceptable for that to revert to a political function. But if we're to say that, OK, we'll change it in the south as well so that the head of police is not accountable to the to the minister, then we have to decouple security from policing. Um, because that's the only way that it would be acceptable under the constitution going by the government's argument. And so I think that's at the forefront of my mind that in order to, because we have to think about all the different ways that we we need equality of experience. We need people to be policed in the same way across the island. You know, the systems in place at the moment, how the police would respond in the north to a protest is different to how it would be responded to in the south and how we'd hold them to account for what they do is different. So whatever we do, we have to, the core has to be equality of experience of policing. And it's about trying to achieve that. And so firstly, I kind of come to the conclusion that that decoupling has to happen. But I also think for all kinds of symbolic reasons, and there are very legitimate concerns, you know, would somebody who's in the PSNI now want to be working in an organisation that has an Irish language name? And those are very genuine concerns. And if we're to make this acceptable on an island basis, we have to really engage with that. So I do find myself quite drawn to the establishment of new forces and, and taking that opportunity. Um, you know, we could have one all-island force, But again, there may be difficulties with that, whether it's around suddenly police officers based in Belfast could be transferred to Kerry and that's not what they signed up for or issues around pay and pensions and all kinds of things. So I ultimately kind of come to the conclusion that I think four or five police forces um, answerable to one national oversight body and then on to the minister gives us a really great opportunity to kind of press a reset button in policing and to draw up the best of both worlds. So, you know, Angarda Siakona traditionally have a really excellent history of community relations. There are absolutely communities that we're hearing about more now that, you know, would challenge that assumption. But it's certainly stronger than it has been historically in the North. Whereas in the North, I would say we have a much more advanced professional service that's being delivered through the work of the college policing in the UK. So, you know, we can really take this moment to draw up the best of policing from both jurisdictions uh, and enhance the service delivered on the island. I, I'm going to ask Roger to come in in a second, but just one of the the, the, the things I found, again, very thought-provoking in your article is, is precisely that we have had a, a tradition, both you know pre-independence and post-independence and post-partition, we've had a, a very centralised model, mm. um, which is quite different, as you point out, from, from Great Britain, where there are numerous police forces. And so so that argument you, you make that you know, we should think perhaps in those terms is, is, is I found very, uh, very, very thought-provoking, as I say. Yeah, and like a national police service is, it's actually quite unusual. I mean, Scotland has recently moved to that model from eight to one, but we have 42 police forces in England and Wales. We have hundreds, if not thousands in France, in the US. You know, we're we're used to this, probably on both sides of the island, we're used to a singular model. Um, And, you know, it it is about envisioning different ways of doing it and and what is going to give the best service on the island. Uh, Sorry, Roger, you wanted to come in. Well, just following on from that, I think we have to be particularly sensitive to the Protestant Unionist loyalist population, or at least sections of that population 
in the north because they have a, a long history of association with the police, multiple mm-hmm. generations serving in the police. And when we're thinking about new models of policing, we need to be sensitive to that. And that's why I, I find Vicky's notion of multiple police forces quite attractive. And also thinking about this as a long-term transition rather than a big bang. So one could think about technical sharing between both police forces, for example, in terms of um, underwater searches, um, that sort of thing, or other technical advice in in terms of counter-terrorism, in terms of jihadism, etc. Rather than a, a very large sort of shock move in which people have to get used to new modes of policing um, in one go. And we shouldn't also underestimate um, the importance of symbolism and policing, issues of, of uniform badging, the Irish language that has been mentioned, are extremely important. When Northern Ireland was going through the pattern reforms and police reform generally the transition from the RUC to the PSNI, the one issue that attracted huge attention from the unionist population was the status of the RUC band. I remember the chief constable saying that that was the issue that he received more correspondence about than any other. But it's a reminder that in these transitions, there will be unanticipated events. And that's why a sort of slow and steady transition is uh, to be recommended. Yeah, I think recognising those concerns that will exist among unionist and loyalist communities is absolutely essential. This will not work. We, you know, you won't make a transition and move forward um, without not just acknowledging, but properly dealing with. You know, it's not just... You, pay niceties to them or anything like that. It's about really listening. Um, and it's also about, as I say, taking what's good about what they do and lifting it forward. And like these issues will arise on both sides. I mean, as a member of the Commission on the Future of Policing, you know, occasionally you throw out the question, do, do people want us to disband and start again like they did in the North? And while a lot of people felt there were, you know, the issues were so, so deeply embedded, We didn't really hear that as an issue. And invariably people said, but we love the name, you know, on Garda Siakona, Guardians of the Peace. It's it's exactly what we would want a police service to be. And so I think for people in the South, there will be reckonings as well in terms of having to um, move forward and adjust to new realities. Yes. And and we shouldn't, in a sense, place too much emphasis that recalibration and starting afresh is the answer to all of our problems. Mm. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, we're now over 20 years into the PSNI and the um, sectarian differential in terms of membership is, is still very out of sync with the rest of the population. So 67% of PSNI officers are Protestant. And as the census results um, will show in June of this year, the Protestant population and the Catholic populations will be round about 50-50. But one other thing, Vicky, and I'd be really interested to hear your thinking on this, and that is gender. 
Mm-hmm. Um, both the Garda and uh, PSNI are around 30% female. That's obviously out of sync with the population. And at the time of the Patent Commission, I thought there was a great opportunity to go for the world's first 50-50 gender equity police force. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think sometimes you hear, you know, I think recently the the Garda Commissioner was speaking at a a women in policing conference here in Dublin and talked about how Ireland had the highest number of women in the police. And you're kind of like, well, you're still under 30 percent. That's not, you know, amazing. And and there's, there's multiple layers to that. There's it's also, you know, I mentioned in the article that if we want to move towards more of a trauma informed perspective on policing that recognises and engages much more with emerging issues like adverse childhood experiences, you know, a, a different constitution of the organisation is really important. And that applies in gender, not just numerically, but also in terms of promotion and advancement and and at a holistic level of the organisation. But it's other issues as well. I mean, you know, you can get into the 50-50 debate too much in the north and exclude um, new communities and and people who do not identify as unionist or nationalist or Protestant or Catholic. Um, And then we also have, and I think this is a really big issue that has to be engaged with much, much more seriously, is the issue of class representation. Because I think the we have a real situation actually probably on both sides of the border where working class communities are feeling what we call over and under policed. So the police are very quick to go to them when when they suspect them of something, but not quick to go to help them when they're a victim of something. And, you know, we would have heard this on the commission that you went to certain communities and people saying, oh, well, nobody from here could even apply to join the guards. Like, you couldn't be doing that. You know, that would be crossing a line. And I think if we engage more with class issues and have much better class representation um, in any police service, Actually, that bridges a lot of the divides a hell of a lot more than some of the other mechanisms that we can put in place. Um, So I think we need to be thinking very intersectionally about how we constitute our police service. Yes, I I think that's a great point. And it also applies to the policing board and the policing Mm. authority, which, you know, very often are people by by members of the public who are politically connected, who are within the legal profession, and they bring something to the table. But very often what they don't bring to the table is representation of those working class communities. And also um, what's very important and what is changing before our eyes on both sides of the border are the new Irish and the new Northern Mm -hmm. Irish coming from outside of the island really contributing to society, to the economy, to culture, but often not represented in terms of policing. And often at the heaviest end of it. I mean, there are plenty of studies, you know, there's a report from 2002, I think it is, that found on Garda Siakana was institutionally racist. Um, We have a lot of research that shows when it's engagements around African communities, Muslim communities, the traveller community, um, that they experience they have very negative experiences with on Garda Siakana. And, you know, then we have real, and where it gets all of this intersects then you take something like the killing of George and Kenjo 15 months ago in Dublin, a young black man who suffered from mental illness. And you, when the accountability mechanisms are working so slow, we still don't have a report from GSOC into that killing. 
And there we see, you know, that people feeling like, well, we we don't get accountability. We're being mistreated and then we don't get accountability. And and the distrust that that generates in policing is so, so damaging. And it's so important that, you know, and that that, that diversification of community has perhaps been slower in the north, but undoubtedly that's going to change. And we have to be at the forefront of this um, and combating any suggestion of racism. But Again, the governance, oversight and accountability mechanisms are really key for achieving that. Uh, Roger, a quick word. Well, well, I I just wanted to agree because on both sides of the border, very often what we have is policing according to the last scandal. You know, Mm. we very often have scandal driven reform and it, it places an emphasis on exactly what your article is about. And that is the structures and processes of governance, of oversight and accountability. And I think that it it illustrates why conversations like the one you spark with your article are so important because very often we don't do that prior planning for new dispensations. And I'm I'm thinking, for example, of the Brexit referendum, mm. of the Scottish independence mm. referendum, in, in which there wasn't that forward-looking policy planning. And the vacuum that was created by that was then filled with disinformation and I'm afraid, in some cases, outright lying. So it it really illustrates the importance of the speed work that you have put in, Vicky, in thinking about these future modes of policing. But that policy work has to be rooted in, for to my mind, in focusing on how policing is experienced. This is really, really key to me. I mean, and I'll plug, I have my own podcast, Policed in Ireland, which is all about hearing people's day-to-day experiences of being policed. And if those conversations only happen at a top-level situation and aren't, you know, embedded in hearing those experiences and don't have that representation involved in them, then then we're going to fail at the first hurdle. Um, and it's so por- important that in the years that come, we're, we're having those engaged, developed conversations. Just one one thing to add, and, and that is um, one of the interesting things about this island on both sides is that we're actually often on a day-to-day basis not policed it's worth reminding ourselves that it is a reasonably low crime environment. And therefore, in thinking about future policing models, it would be good if we're not over-policed, if we're policed mm. appropriately to the culture, to the economy, to the way that, that we live. Much of society is well-regulated and self-policed. But of course, we do need police and we need them to be appropriately uh, backed up by the law where necessary. But we've never heard of police forces who ask for fewer powers and fewer resources. So we need to be mindful yeah. of that going forward. Uh, Vicky, finally then, your article, um, as we've said throughout, focuses on these key issues of uh, governance, uh, oversight and accountability. Uh, but it's already clear from what you've been saying and as you acknowledge in the paper that there are many other issues as well. You've already mentioned you know, the question of name and symbols and as we saw with the creation of the PSNI, that was a hugely difficult issue in, in Northern Ireland politically and, and, and within the force itself. Um, you've also talked about diversity and representativeness. Um, just um, a quick sort of a quick, quick, quick sort of thumbnail sketch, if you like, of, of the other kinds of issues we need to be looking at. I mean, it's everything, right? It's it, it's all dimensions of policing. So yeah, it's everything from names and symbols, but also 
powers and how we regulate the police. You know, we have big differences at the moment. You take Ireland, you don't have a legal right to have your lawyer in interview. If you're being interviewed by the police, you don't have a right to have your lawyer in the room with you for that. Um, And that's very different in the north. So there's a lot of differences in terms of police practice, Um, a lot of differences in terms of, you know, how community policing is done, let's say, is structured quite differently. Um, So so it's really about everything, Um, everything that the police do. We have to think about it in, in this context and in those terms. We've had a really rich Uh, discussion and I have the sense that uh, we could carry on for a good bit a good good bit more to come but Vicky Conway and Roger McGinty thank you both so much for taking part in this podcast and I'm sure our listeners will find it as uh, stimulating and thought-provoking as I have Aaron's It's Joint Project of the Royal Irish Academy the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.